recording yes i'm recording now uh, welcome to another episode of the wbt rock bearing trees podcast we've got a very special episode uh for you today we are joined by co-host and co-editor andrea williams and phil cly author of redeployment and more recently missionaries phil how's it going it's great good to be on thanks guys Thank Thanks you so for much coming for up. coming. Yeah, yeah. Phil also uh, hosts uh, a really great uh, podcast of his own. Would you like to say any words about uh, your efforts <laughs> with Mr. Siegel? Yeah, Manifesto, me and uh, Jake Siegel. Uh, I'm at the NYU Vets Writers Workshop, and it's, um, yeah, it's a weird little thing. Every episode we do a manifesto, which is either a manifesto or an essay, some sort of statement. Uh, and then we pair it with a work of art. And so we discuss the two. We just recorded an essay on Jan Kott's uh, Shakespeare or Endgame. And we paired that with George Oppen's poem, Psalm. So wow. that'll be coming out uh, probably at the end of the month. Um, but yeah, that's the sort of thing that we do. So yeah, it was a project we started just to kind of like force us on a regular basis to have the conversations about like, art and ideas that we found useful to our own writing, <laughs> yeah. especially as we, our lives got busier and, and it was harder to sort of meet up and, and have the kind of arguments and bars that we used to. So <laughs> yeah, it's been fun. Well, and Jake name, is, go ahead. Oh, I was wondering if you named a business for him in your novel. I couldn't help but notice. <laughs> I did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah ha, diner. I knew it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, one of the fun things uh, you know, like I killed, um, I killed a, a covite in uh, in redeployment, and Gavin Covite and Chris Robinson in their novel. Uh, there was a Cly who didn't, you know, suffered a particularly bad fate <laughs> in response. <laughs> uh, you know, why not? Why not throw the names of, of friends? Uh, well, you were gentle. He only owned a business. It was a what was it a, a barbershop or a deli or something? I mean. It was a, it was so a diner. It was a, a diner. diner. Yeah, uh, you don't need uh, retribution for that. That's all right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's cool. That's and that's the type of place that presumably you and uh, and Jake would uh, hang out and and argue about things like the significance of Marx's uh, Das Kapital, for example. <laughs> sure. Yeah. 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 Exactly. <laughs> Well, today we've got a, a pretty cool uh, concept, I think. We're going to talk about two books, uh, Phil's new book, obviously, um, and seen through the framework of uh, a, a book by um, a guy named Anton Chekhov, uh, who was writing in the 19th century. Uh, Chekhov was a doctor, uh, so something of a country doctor, and a wonderful uh, craftsman of the short story and plays as well. Uh, the book uh, excuse me, the story we're looking at today is, uh, is called The Murder. Andre, do you want to tell us more about The Murder? I would love to. <laughs> so The Murder. So this is, this was quite a story. It's, it's a longer short story. And uh, it starts, <laughs> it starts in a place where it doesn't end up, which I find really interesting. It starts with a man named, I'll call him Matvi. Does that sound like a, an okay pronunciation? Uh, and he, I, I just expect that I'm going to murder every name in this. So <laughs> we're just going to go with it. Oh, Mavi. Okay. M-A-T-V-E-Y. He is singing under, uh, sort of a light at a, uh, train station and it's under an icon of the, yes. In front the, of an icon. Yes. The, the so annunciation, the annunciation, which would be what late March probably. So, and it's snowing heavily. So he's a man this is how we meet him. He's singing beautifully. And at first he seems like probably a, a pretty <laughs> cool guy and he's definitely a good singer. Uh, and then as this goes on, we start to spend some more time with him and in his head. And we learn that he, he's embittered on a couple of fronts. He had to leave his job at a tile factory, which he's still sad about. At night, sometimes he peruses his tiles uh, and sort of reminisces about his time working in the factory, which is interesting. Um, he is sad that he's no longer able to sing in the factory because he used to sing apparently these choir sort of recitals that would go on for something like five or six hours, which he claims 
that other people complain about as if, you know, like, why would they complain? Okay, so like a very, very long sermon. So then he also uh, has had a brush with religious zealotry. And uh, he had become incredibly sort of ascetic, um, fasting all the time. He was disgusted by the priests that he saw. He believed that he could be more holy than the priests and he could smell vodka on their breath and tobacco on their clothes. And he, he, dis he was disgusted by this. So he kind of set out on this project to become more priestly than the priests around him. So he would walk barefoot in the snow and drag chains around and, uh, yeah, no, even on days when you were allowed to take a little oil, he wouldn't eat any oil and things like this. Uh, and then, then it kind of got out of hand and turned into sort of this, well, apparently what happens is if you're very priestly, you start to attract the ladies. I, they're drawn to this, like flies to honey, and they want to be not only cured, but then they want to dance in your house, and then they want to take their clothes off and start speaking in tongues, and then they want to also other things happen. He ends up with an illegitimate child uh, from a lady who works at the factory. He kind of falls from grace and he's counseled by, a, I believe, a priest who tells him, you know, listen, you need to just calm down. Like, you need to just be a normal person. You are not supposed I mean, it's, to it's his, more his, than everyone. His landlord. It's yeah, his landlord. His landlord. Okay, good, good, right, good. Okay. Yeah. A, a man of brains <laughs> without <laughs> education, right? Just a stern, right, God-fearing, yeah. you know, God-fearing man who works hard. He says, be an ordinary man. Eat and drink, dress and pray like everyone else. All that is above the ordinary is of the devil. Right, good, Amazing. right. So he, yeah, great. that's Matvi. So Matvi lives with his cousin, Yaakov, uh, and Yaakov's sister, Aglaya, and then Yaakov's, is it Yaakov's daughter? Uh, and yeah. she has an unusual, what is her, Datushka or something. I didn't write it down. Dushuka. Oh, sorry. An ugly, freckled girl of 18, barefoot as usual, wearing the dress in which she had at nightfall taken water to the cattle. She sort of seems sort of dim-witted. She's also like, let, can we talk about the tavern? Because it's insane. Like, the, 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 So a lot of this, like the way that he sets these up, uh, a lot of, you know, it's, it's broken into seven sections and the so much of, you know, where he's going is, is done through like physical description. Um, you know, like at the beginning, you know, there's everybody looking at this great icon of the Annunciation and it's beautiful. Um, and, you know, all stood in silence, fascinated by the glare of the lights and the howling of the snowstorm, which was aimlessly disporting itself outside, regardless of the fact that it was the eve of the Annunciation, right? <laughs> um, and that contrast. And then when we get to the tavern, it is, the description of the tavern is insane. So they live in one half of the tavern, right? Uh, that is, is a dark roofed in courtyard. The gates always kept locked, uh, especially on, on moonlit nights, a feeling of depression and unaccountable uneasiness in people who drove by with posting horses as though sorcerers or robbers were living in it. And the driver always looked back after he passed and whipped up his horses. Travelers did not care to put up there because the people at the house were always unfriendly and charged heavily. And so the Terahovs, it's the, the, the family is the Terahovs, live there. They, the upstairs, there was a fire. <laughs> and so it's like burnt out with like empty bottles and a wind uh, that goes through uh, and sounds like ominous and threatening, like vo ominous and threatening voices. And then and the downstairs, half of it is the Terahovs and half of it is the tavern so that when they're living, they can always hear like the drunkards uh, like talking to each other. It's just this really intense setting. Anyway, sorry, I, I interrupted you. No, it's wonderful. Like, no, you're yeah. wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> Right. Okay. And so, so Matvi lives there with Yaakov and his, and uh, Yaakov's weird sister who has this little thin turkey voice. And then this daughter who just walks around barefoot in the snow and her legs look like red turkey legs all the time. A turkey. There's like two mentions of turkey. That's weird. Anyway. Um, right. So. <laughs> Aglaya, who, who they thought used to be a flagellant, right? Um, <laughs> right. Cause she wears some kerchief. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, like, but she so, was. I mean, I think they, yeah, that's like yeah, that's yeah. borne out in in the narrative. <laughs> right. It's, it's pretty, pretty clear. clear. Like, all of the Terahovs have some sort of like heretical 
right. weird, excessive religious fervor of some kind. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And it's changed with every generation. Right. And the last mm-hmm. generation is like QAnon, like crazy, <laughs> where they try to read numbers and letters into everything they're reading in the Bible and all this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So there's been a money dispute between Matvi and Yaakov. And then on top of that, Matvi is just like driven insane by Yaakov's decision to pray only in the home. Yaakov disagrees with all the priests. Uh, one, there's, he has a complaint about every single one. So he does these really sort of rigorous prayers every night in his home with his family. And it annoys the piss out of both of them. And so Yaakov will be praying and then Matvi will come to the room and be like, repent, repent, you know, this right. is sin. Which, you know, that, would be, that yeah. would be rough to live with. <laughs> Well, he's doing what, so Yaakov is doing what Matvi used to do, which was right. thinking that he was so much better than everybody else, that he except rejected. privately. Yeah, the community. And he, except, yeah, yeah, he's not having the whole, and so it's like Yaakov and his, and, and Aglaya, uh, like, like doing these prayers for themselves. And it doesn't even seem like there's a bit where, you know, he, he says he's not doing it for blessings from God, but for the sake of good order. Men cannot live without religion, and religions have to be expressed from year to year and from day to day in a certain order, right? Um, And, like, that's what he likes, and he's cruel. Like, he's not interested in, like, the content of religion. Like, he's a terrible person in many ways. Um, Well, and this is – it's not entirely private private because he is known in the area – uh, colloquially is godly he has this, this sort of like yeah. uh, very disparaging nickname and which i think is set off yeah, they're the a, godlies yeah they're the godlies yeah. but it's set off <laughs> yeah. i think ironically with matty's yeah. described experience because there is this um uh there's this character in russian folklore and i think still in russian culture today of the kind of the godly fool which is this person who sort of like has the power of prophecy and and Matthew, like before he goes too far down this yeah. uh, down this path, he talks about how people were started to believe that he was a saint. So the thing that he, I mean, he truly invested himself in this idea. You you have the sense in a way that you know, and possibly what is what is annoying to him, I think, about his brother is that, as as you said, Phil, like the brother isn't doing it because he truly believes this stuff. It's because he believes in this 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 awful kind of uh, cleanliness, this this order, right. uh, and, and everyone. Well, it's, makes and, and it's not just that he doesn't want to do it. He says your prayer is not pleasing to God, for it is written: first be reconciled with thy brother, and then offer thy gift. You lend money at usury, you deal in vodka, repent. And there's yeah. this moment where you know, and, and Chekhov is so good because <laughs> Yakov is almost like this caricature. Uh, uh, and it's it's so ridiculous from the house and like everything is so sort of extreme. But there's this moment where, you know, Yaakov gets really just so furious and he has to walk out. Uh, and he says, you know, in, in Matvi's words, Yaakov saw nothing but the usual evasions of empty headed and careless people who talk of loving your neighbor, of being reconciled with your brother and so on, simply to avoid fasting and praying, fasting and reading holy books, and who talk contemptuously of profit and interest simply because they don't like working. Of course, to be poor, save nothing and put by nothing was a great deal easier than being rich, right? Like the the, the excuses that um, uh, that that. <laughs> Or the reasons that rich people, things rich people tell themselves, like right. they haven't changed that much. It was Jeffrey Lebowski. Uh, over, he's he's Jeffrey the, Lebowski yeah. in the big right. Lebowski, but like the old but, Lebowski. Right. But the job, sir. Later, you know, after they have this dispute um, uh, where like this policeman and Sergey, who's this waiter who's obsessed with, he's sort of been like downwardly mobile and is obsessed with money. Um, uh, is it keeps asking Matthew for money and Matthew doesn't have anything because he's given it all away. Um, really quickly, he, in quick interjection on Sergei yeah. because I love his description in the beginning. Oh, yeah. um, oh, memories of the past haunted him continually. <laughs> he could never get used to sausage, quote, only fit for the orchestra, to the rudeness yeah. of the station master and to the peasants who used to haggle over the prices. And in his opinion, it was as unseemly to haggle over prices in a refreshment room as in a chemist's shop. He was ashamed of his poverty and degradation, and that shame was now the leading interest of his life. Yeah, it's fantastic. Sergey um, 
What's he his last name? He throws the sausage on the floor. Oh, it's Nick. Yeah. I have it written down here. Nikonovich or something. Um, yeah, he's just like this seething disappointment. He can't even get through a day or make conversation. He is just so disappointed and claustrophobic. And this claustrophobia, I just, I think it's this really sort of pervasive theme through the story because here you have Yaakov who is like, this place looks creepy. There are terrible noises. I hate my life. My daughter has no religion. I've worked my whole life to give her religion. She's got no religion. She's stupid. And then at the end of the novel, all he wants is to get back home, back right. to this thing that was so constricting for him. But I guess we can get to that later. But the waiter, I just love the waiter. He just, he's, he's so funny and angry and <laughs> just feels so, you know, abused all the time and throwing his sausage on the floor and he can't even serve hot food anymore like he used to. And, and, he and he's obsessed in the mirror. <laughs> he's obsessed with refreshment bars and like yes. everything that goes to that. And like when he sees like a woman nursing a child and he tries to like have like a moment of exchange with him, he's like, and like a nursing, I forget the exact one. It's like a nursing mother is like the refreshment bar for a baby. <laughs> like it's like the best that he can do. Yeah. I feel like I've um, met people like this, like, yeah, you know, yeah. in these awkward social situations where a dude is trying to kind of connect and you're like, no, no, it's not. Just stop the refreshment bar. We don't need your analogy. Yeah. Stick to the sausage and the tea. Thank you. But, but, but yeah. these, like the stuff that he says, gets to Yaakov because there's truth in it, right? And right. and he starts thinking, at first he's like, he's reminded of like that line about how it's hard to enter, you know, the rich for rich people to enter the heaven, right? And it's Love like, that. The, Love you that. know, like the, the line is not that it's hard, right? Like <laughs> it's, it's a little stronger than hard. But then later he, you know, later he, he, he starts referring to the camel, right? Right, that has to pass through the eye of the needle, Damn right? And he starts thinking about this time that he 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 made a great profit by buying a st stolen horse, and then he thinks about this time that a man you know drunk himself to death in his tavern, and he's um, uh, you know there's this one ex exchange where he, he he has to leave the house and he's looking at the plane, familiar to him from childhood. Yakov remembered that he had had just the same trouble and these same thoughts in his young days, when dreams and imaginings had come upon him and his faith had wavered. And in that moment, all of a sudden you're like, oh, you know, like this guy is not just a caricature. This guy is somebody who has been crushed in some way, right? And, um, and this false religion that he has, um, is in so, some sort of compensation for something that has been stifled, right? But that he still feels when he's looking out on this, you know, pretty dreary landscape to be to be clear, but that holds something, something for him that is related to these kind of like potentials that he felt as a younger man. I, I feel right. that we we haven't even finished the summary yet, but I already want to switch over to missionaries a little bit because that seems to me to be like the perfect transition point to talk about. I figured there would be two characters that we were going to talk about from missionaries, primarily Abel mm -hmm. and Juan Pablo, but that's Juan Pablo kind of, not to a T, but like he's wrestling every day mm -hmm. with very similar problems. Um, yeah, right. So um, yeah, I'll do <laughs> I'll do a quick, quick, quick loss and we can get back to the, the summary of the murder. But yeah, Juan Pablo is a officer in the Colombian military. And when he, as a young boy, he'd had this sort of intense experience at a Jesuit retreat um, where he felt like he had felt the presence of God. And he had initially been very religious and, and, and had wanted to recapture that sort of intense sense of, of presence and love, right? Um, of like a, a sort of like wound bleeding in from the eternal, right? Um, but then as he gets older and he, that sort of falls away and there's a sort of description of him watching his father who had, um, uh, was also in the military 
and had been involved in the fight against Pablo Escobar in Medellin. And Medellin is his family's hometown, right? Um, and it's just destroyed by violence. But then his father is doing these things that feel intensely meaningful to him, right? And so, you know, that it's one particular sort of long chapter of Juan Pablo's um, uh, life. A beautiful chapter. Within the book. Thank you very much. Um, which he refers to as about his sort of three failed loves. And the first failed love is his love of, of you know, sort of God, basically, uh, which he ultimately, you know, at the time of the telling, he no longer believes in God. And then he decides he's going to become a military man. And this is the way that you can sort of act in the world and do things of moral significance and have real concrete impacts. Um, and then sort of that becomes his second failed love. And then uh, the third one sort of constricts to just his family, right? And his hopes for his daughter to the future. Um, but yeah, yeah, that's that's Juan Pablo. Uh, and that's, yeah, yeah, that's interesting. Right, um, I mean, he's wrestling with that. That's, that's, mm -hmm. and, and I, it's it's odd. I in the last time Andrea and I talked about a book, we were just we were talking about or a story. Um, we're talking about an Alice Monroe story, and a person wrestling with um, reality's failure to live up to expectations. I suppose on a certain level. And, which which story is this? Progress of Progress love. Progress of love. Yeah, that could describe a bunch of Alice Monroe stories. <laughs> <laughs> it holds up to the title of a collection too so it is it does it literally does yeah. but yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. I, and i think well, it's like this, a, is, this feels very oh sorry go ahead adrian i'm sorry all you <laughs> well i just was reading this um from yakov here and just what you were saying about juan pablo wrestling with this disappointment and and it's saying so this is Yaakov and it's saying, it was clear to him now that he was himself dissatisfied with his religion and could not pray as he used to. He must yeah. repent, he must think things over, reconsider, live and pray in some other way, but how pray? And perhaps all this was a temptation of the devil and nothing of this was necessary. How was it to be? What was he to do? Who could guide him? What helplessness? He stopped and clutching at his head began to think, but Matfi's being near him prevented him from reflecting calmly. <laughs> and he went rapidly into the room. Yeah. Matfi's making a critical error. He needs to just go outside right now. But Yeah, I mean, the thing is Matfi's right, but it's also like, God, <laughs> you, like this is horrible. Like his brother's trying to pray and he's always walking in going, this is not pleasing to God, repent. Give him some space. Let the guy have some space. <laughs> I feel like that that claustrophobia is so like th that's that's something that's characteristic of the Russian short story, and I don't think because I don't think yeah. it's just Chekhov. There is this kind of claustrophobia oh, that you alluded to. I mean, the, well, where, crime and punishment, which it feels like this story is obviously responding to, like mm, mm. Um, is you know just that like Raskolnikov in this room. Actually, I mean this story. Like at one point they literally well we can get to it, but they, don't they literally ask him if he's a Raskolnik, which is like a phrase for a schismatic? Oh um, yeah, maybe. Uh, I, I uh, remember seeing the other phrase, um, but yeah, yeah. I mean, the, in in another sort of I think uh, skill of Chekhov here, and just a, a mark of his greatness as a as a writer is how you can go from empathizing with Matvi, who is a pretty yeah. empathetic character. I mean, he has flaws, yeah. he's a complete character, but he's overall empathetic. He's already been through it. So he's been through this zealotry experience and come out the other side. And you go right from that in his annoying, uh, cruel uh, cousin, Yaakov, but then you empathize with Yaakov in that moment where you're like, you're right, Matvi's being like a real jerk. Like, just give him some space to pray. That's all he wants to do is pray. And there's a moment where, so like, like, Yaakov has been hypocritical, right? And his, his prayers have been BS form, formalism, right? But then he's in, in sort of, you know, the story is divided into seven sections. So like in section four, like he really gets unsettled and he's thinking more and more about the camel and the eye of the needle. And he's looking at people and he looks at, you know, Dashutka and he, and he thinks like, she struck him as so savage and benighted. And for the first time he realized she had no religion. Then he sees the police officer and Sergei and he thinks these people too had no religion. That did not trouble them in the least in human life began to seem to him as strange, senseless, and unenlightened as a dog, dogs. And then he himself feels like a beast, right? And then the next se section, he goes and he's praying again. But this time, Chakov says that he was inwardly pronouncing other words. Lord, 
forgive me, Lord, save me, right? Which here, it seems like is something much closer to true prayer. But then what does Matvi do? He comes in and tells him again, your prayer is not pleasing to God. He's right. like Kramer from Seinfeld or something. Yeah. Well, and it's fascinating. It is Dostoevskian as well because his prayers intensify and become meaningful and become different at the moment I think that he is realizing he is going to kill Matvi. And so yeah. it, I mean, what is a murderer? If you're, if you're around a future murderer, are you still around a murderer? I think is part of the question mm -hmm. here. And he, because his wife comes in and stares at him and he's bowing extra low to the floor and he's doing this really intense prayer. He moves away from Mott because he doesn't want to strike him. But I think he knows and he's praying with this extra intensity because he knows that he is about to cross this uncrossable bridge and that he will not be able to come back. And it, right. I mean, there are ways that it's moving. I mean, he says, out of my house, shouted Yakov. He loathed Matvi's wrinkled face and his voice and the crumbs on his mustache and the fact that he was munching <laughs> out, I tell you. <laughs> and then Motley says this odd phrase to him, brother, it's not his brother, it's his cousin. He says, brother, think what you are about. And I believe those are some of the last words that we really get from him until he has this little, little tirade about you are a backslider from God and a heretic. But, Which is exactly yeah. what his, he's repeating what his landlord <laughs> said to him that knocked him out. It's repeating almost word for word what his landlord had said to him that knocked him out of his like fervor where he was like a religious guru who all the ladies were going to and he was having sex with them after right. like these like sort of, you know, ecstatic religious experiences. and Drinking was, milk you know, in the factory. What Ooh. does that even mean? <laughs> is that a euphemism? We know that you were drinking milk with your darling in the factory on fast days. I was, I was thinking, how do, I, how does one interpret this line? I don't. I don't understand. He wandered from the path. Okay, there's oil and then there's milk. It was only an oil day, but yeah. I, I, by the way, I feel like we're giving uh, Aglia short shrift too. She's such a wonderful character because, yeah. like, like there's a bit where, you know, he's. Uh, <laughs> Matthew wants Lenten oil, even though you're not supposed to have oil during the Lenten fast. Aglia took down a bottle of Lenten oil from the shelf and banged it angrily down before Matthew with a malignant smile, evidently pleased that he was such a sinner. <laughs> That's so great. Yeah, <laughs> former flagellant, which, yeah, there's this great unexplored uh, yeah. past of hers that you know just in those few phrases must have been, you know, wonderfully depraved because they, it was it was depraved for all of them, save Yaakov. Yaakov's present is depraved because he's sort of denying himself the the the, the urge yeah. that he feels to to give himself over to it, and what his prayer. Right, but he knows he wants to like, like it's clear to like right right before the murder. <laughs> uh, you know, it's clear to him now that he was himself dissatisfied with his religion and could not pray as he used to. He must repent. He must think things over, reconsider, live and pray in some other way. But how pray? And perhaps all this was temptation of the devil and nothing of this was necessary. How is it to be? What was he to do? Who could guide him? What helplessness? I mean, it's just like, yeah, you know, from, from, from him being this kind of, really contemptible caricature, right? Um, hypocritical, utterly obsessed with pure formality of religion with none of the content, um, you know, complicit in all sorts of wrongdoing, proud to all of a sudden you're feeling for him. And then, you know, there's Matt B with his potatoes and his oil. Right. <laughs> and it's well, self-righteousness. His earned self-righteousness. And it crumbs in his beard. Ugh, I know. <laughs> well, and we should make clear that all Yaakov really does is enable. He right. throws a bowl on the floor and he holds okay. up a man while motioning with his finger for his wife to hit him. We, we haven't described the murder yet. Yeah. The so murder. Do you want to do it? Sorry, the murder. Okay, I'll get to the murder. So, okay, we can tell where this is all going. Things are not going well. The snow is swirling outside. Everyone is mad as hell in this house. And... Now, Matvi is taunting Yaakov, repent, repent, you're a sinner, you're a backslider from God. Yaakov cannot take it anymore. And so he starts kind of tussling with Matvi. And Aglaya, the flagellant, who's been watching all this, 
She's been pissed about the Lenten oil, which she slammed on the table. She takes it, she slams it with all her force straight on the skull of the cousin she hated. Matt Ooh, she, she, thinks, she thinks he's trying to beat Yakov, right? So yes. she does think that she's defending him, which is, I think, important. Yeah. I don't know if I believe that, but okay. It says <laughs> it. It says it. It seemed to Aglaya that he was trying to beat Yakov. Okay, fine. Okay, I believe you. Okay, Matt V reeled, and in one instant, his face became calm and indifferent. Okay, seems like you could stop there. The man is disabled. All right, but Yakov, breathing heavily, excited, and feeling pleasure at the gurgle the bottle had made, like a living thing when it had struck the head, kept him from falling, and several times, he remembered this very distinctly, motioned Aglaya towards the iron, there's a cold iron on an ironing board, with his finger, and only, and this is very, it's a weird way to write this. And only when the blood began trickling through his hands, obviously a strike has to occur here, but he feels blood trickling through his hands. And when he heard Deshutka's loud wail, and when the ironing board fell with a heavy crash and Matvi rolled heavily on it, Yakov left off feeling anger and understood what had happened. Let him rot the factory, buck. That's Aglaya screaming. He's got what he deserved. Mm. What do we make of this? Yakov didn't even do it. And then there's just a potato sitting in the blood. <laughs> right. Just great. Who would want Nothing was so terrible to Yakov as the potato in the blood on which he was afraid of stepping. And there was something else terrible which weighed upon him like a bad dream and seemed the worst danger that we could not take it in the first minute. <laughs> this was the waiter, Sergei. Nikanorich. Nikanorich. Yeah, uh, I sure. totally nailed it. I don't know what you're talking about. I'm, <laughs> I'm fluent in Russian, obviously. Who is, I, I read this in the original. What do you guys do? Who is standing in the doorway with the reckoning beads in his hands, very pale, looking with horror what was happening in the kitchen. Ah, oh, that's great. And it's in the next paragraph where I think you get one more echo of that, that, um, sort of painful self-awareness that, that prevents, that keeps Yaakov from, from being a true godly and, and just sort of oh, a yeah. godly. Um, to conceal the murder would be agonizing, but for the policeman who would whistle and smile ironically to come from the station, for the peasants to arrive and bind Yaakov's and Aglia's hands and take them solemnly to the district courthouse and from there to the town, while everyone on the way would point at them and say mirthfully, they are taking the godlies. This seemed to Yakov more agonizing than anything. Yeah, and he longed to lengthen out the time somehow so as to endure this shame, not now, but later in the future. There's something, so what's gonna commence is like a crappy cover-up. And what's great is Chekhov makes it very clear. Yakov at never, never at any point thinks his cover-up's gonna work. Right. He just wants to, he just wants to postpone Right. And and it's the social stigma that he, you know, fears the most. Um, there's something kind of pathetic about it. They end up bribing the um, Sergey. <laughs> everybody, everybody uh, who has a finger in this gets burned. Everybody. Nobody. Yeah. Oh, Sergei. He, he like looks for money. Uh, it's also it's just, just a nice little note. Right. He's looking for money in the house and he finds 421 ruble notes and silver to the amount of 35 rubles. Not quite 30 pieces of silver, but you know. Right, right. A rounding error towards yeah. 30 pieces of silver. Yeah. Well, it's fascinating what's done with time here because time, the present is so intolerable, intolerable to Yakov, this entire story. Hmm. I mean, just before he said he wants to lengthen time, as soon as he's guilty, he wants to lengthen time so that he can find a way out of this, or he wants to lengthen the span of time before the townspeople are jeering at him and his family and leading them all away. But before that, all he could think about was that the span of time of that afternoon was going to be intolerable. Mm. Uh, he came home because it was a fast. He didn't have warm tea or food to look forward to. He didn't even want to start the prayers. Everything seems stretched out in this painful, awful sort of Pascalian, like terrible present way. And then he <sighs> suddenly wants that time. And so <laughs> it, it hurts, like it hurts to read because even though he's not good and you don't love him, 
you want that time for him. You know, maybe it'll work. Maybe they can throw well, they, the body in the forest. But <laughs> they, they, they decide to throw the body in the forest. Not because they think it's going to work. He knew there was no deceiving right. anyone by this. Because the idea is they're going to throw it in the forest and they're going to say like, oh, maybe some workmen killed him, right? Like <laughs> he knew there was no For deceiving anybody by this. But to move, to do something, to be active was not as agonizing as to sit still and wait. It's like, I'm going to try and do a cover up, not because I think it's going to help. <laughs> Just to, to have something to do, you know? Oh my God. And, um, and then they come, there's an inquiry. And what's great, what's so great is they get it all wrong, right? <laughs> so like at the inquiry, they, they ultimately decide like that Yaakov killed Matvi over money. Matvi doesn't have any money, right? Um, and, and they like, they question Dashutka and she said that Uncle Matthew and Aunt Ugly Quarrel almost fought every day over money, and that Uncle Matthew was rich so much so that he'd given someone his darling nine hundred rubles. Right? Well, that was like the woman who he'd had a child with. We gave everything he had. Like, you know, everything is screwed up. They end up arresting Dashutka anyway because they, they, you know, because they took her to dispose of the body. So she's an accomplice, even though she's clearly like mentally deficient in some way. Um, and then at the trial. Uh, I, you know, that's when they ask him, are you a dissenter? And I think the word is a Raskolnik, um, which was like a schismatic sect. Um, uh, there was one like bit of commentary said that, this, that, that said that uh, uh, they asked him if he was a Raskolnik, which I just think that is it's like an actual version. word. Um, yeah. But again, it, it, like, I think this is, this, it, this, this story is so obviously responding to crime and punishment right mm. it's like it, instead of a murder committed because of somebody with no religion right or you know it's like people who are committing murder over like empty forms of religion mm. um and then like an epilogue in a penal colony but anyway uh well the epilogue i, I the thought epilogue is amazing yeah it's that's, amazing that's where he finally like breaks through because he tries to yeah. escape and of course he's caught because he's incompetent. I mean, he's, he's like in his forties or fifties and he's in Siberia somewhere, it doesn't work. So he's, he's, his sentence gets extended from 10 years to forever. So he's just always right. going to be a prisoner. Yeah. And, uh, but then he's sort of, he still thinks about how many wishes for it, but he wishes he wants to save somebody. Like he has become right. Matvi, except he can't go home anymore because there is no more home. So he's just, well, it gets a reprieve because he doesn't have to, to load coal like he was supposed to. Um, yeah, in the, in, in, in the court, like he just, like they ask him, are you a dissenter, right? Are you this member of this like, you know, schismatic religious cult, right? And he says, I can't tell. Mm -hmm. He answered, right? He says he has no religion now. He knew nothing and understood nothing. His old belief was hateful to him now. It seemed only darkness and folly. And all four of them are found guilty of murder with mercenary motives, which is not at all what happened, right? right. But they all go to prison. And then he's in Sahalin, which Chekhov visited, right? Um, and actually, I found there's like a, a an essay by this critic named Durkin. The, the name... Uh, Terakovs, so these are the Terakovs, like they're mm -hmm. all, that's the family name, um, is taken from a convict uh, that Chekhov met on Sakhalin called Fedor Terakov, a notorious murderer of other convicts. Huh. And also one of a pair of her brothers. Anyway. Wow. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Isn't that great? Well that is true. I love this in, in light of your novel, Phil. I just have to say this made me this little passage from the uh penal colony made me think of your novel. Ever since he had lived in prison together with men banished here from all ends of the earth, with Russians, Ukrainians, it goes on and on, Georgians, Chinese, gypsies. And ever since he had listened to their talk and watched their sufferings, he had begun to turn again to God. And it seemed to him that he had at last learned the true faith for which all his family from his grandmother Avdotya down had so thirsted, which they had sought so long and which they had never found. And I was thinking about this a lot because the very final chapter of your novel, I don't mean to derail us, but it, it does deal with this idea of order, which is yeah. of paramount importance in this story and in your novel, this idea of trying to create order out of some kind of human chaos, political chaos. And I mean, I'll just let that sort of lead into whatever we want to talk about next, but that those lines in particular, I underline as, as 
making me think of your novel, which I had just finished before I read them. Yeah, yeah, at the end, Juan Pablo <laughs> self-consciously wants to create order, right? And there's a discussion, the first chapter where you meet him, there's a discussion of justice. And he basically says, as a military person, my job isn't, isn't about really what's just. It's about creating order so that you can build a place where justice happens, right? Like I'm clearing the path. Whatever you do behind me, that's your work, right? And at the end, he is a mercenary and a sort of functionary of a particular type of order um, that is prevalent in, in the world in terms of the ways in which our wars are managed or the ways in which our wars happen and the kind of institutions that he's a part of, which, you know, he's, he's a Colombian scenario on an Emirati airbase working with a mixture of like Israelis and Americans and all these different contractors who are waging war in Yemen using, you know, Chinese drones, Swedish surveillance technology, and, you know, very, very brutally creating a certain kind of order. Right. Specifically and, American type of order. And I think that's the sort of the genius mm -hmm. of the book uh, that that, you know, is is that can be overlooked if you haven't been over there and seen it or if you're not sort of plugged into it, as we all are, um, which which I think is and I, I might be wrong about this. This is my hypothesis. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I think this is why you named the book missionaries, because they end up being the missionaries of this order. And I've. Yeah. I've I've had discussions with a couple of folks who have read the book and, um, and don't quite get that connection, which to me seems obvious because you named the book that, and that's, but the, the, yes, the, 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 the creation of order, the, the, the monomaniacal dedication um, is the only thing that can bring a Colombian to, to Yemen to, 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 to crank a, 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 you know, a missile made in Israel or France or China, and it really doesn't matter where it was made into you know, a, 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 small, um, a small compound, uh, somebody who has never met any of these people. Um, that is a distinctly American phenomenon. And it's being, I mean, it's being adopted the way McDonald's was adopted 20 or 30 years ago. You look at photos these days and you'll see Russian special operations like kitted out exactly the same way the American special ops are, the Afghan special operations. They wanted M16s. It was like, you've got good weapons. You don't need M16s. But they wanted to look that way when we were in Afghanistan. And I just thought that was so, so brilliant, making it about missionaries. He's a missionary. He, he came back to God. Yeah. Right. Should we but give a little it's elevator? A purely eminent God. Yeah. <laughs> it's a purely eminent God. Yeah. I'm wondering if we should just for uh, for listeners who might not, who might be new to know this, the maybe novel. give them a quick little, a little, yeah, new to the novel, give them a little quick elevator pitch so they can kind of participate in the rest of the conversation. Let me, maybe, maybe let me, let me just read a little bit from, okay. from the, the end of the book that might, um, because I think trying to explain the whole novel, but at the end, Juan Pablo is a Colombian. So this has really happened. Like Colombian mercenaries were recruited to fight in Yemen by the Emiratis, right? And mostly they were used as sort of ground troops. And um, uh, but Juan Pablo had operated at a higher level, and so he's part of the sort of targeting folks. And so he's, um, you know, in the compound, like planning targets, watching things from afar, from this like base in the empty quarter of. of of, of the Emirates, you know, dealing out death to tribesmen in Yemen. And there's a, um, there's a bit where they're sort of uh, aiming in on this, you know, they sort of killed people uh, and then by accident realized they had killed somebody whose funeral was probably going to attract more people they want to kill. So they're tracking the funeral and they're going to hit the funeral. And this is right about when they're going to do it. Juan Pablo closed his eyes, took in the hum of the operations center. He wondered if the men who were about to die were capable of appreciating everything that went into their deaths. An American mercenary was aiming a laser at the instruction of an American pilot operating a Chinese drone. They were communicating over an encrypted frequency routed through a Canadian aircraft mounted with Swedish surveillance technology bounced from repeater hub to repeater hub to the main air ground tower at their base in the empty quarter. 
The drone pilot in turn was communicating with an Emirati fighter pilot in an American aircraft armed with a laser guided bomb capable of being launched from nine miles away and 40,000 feet up and still detonating within 10 feet of its target. He heard someone clear the pilot's hawk. Was it Jeffy? It didn't matter. He knew, as everyone in that operation center knew, that in another country, miles and miles away from them, men of another religion and another way of life breathed their last. They knew, and the ground team knew, but and the pilots knew, but no one else. Then, tens of thousands of feet above the target building, the pilot did nothing more complicated than push a little button. A series of small charges on a rack mounted underneath his plane ignited, blowing away the hooks holding his bomb in place. It wobbled out into the air. Awkward, ungainly, a baby bird the size of a car detached from its parent and plummeting through space, or almost detached. A thin wire trailed behind it, still connected to the jet, unspooling and unspooling until there was no more wire left and it tore itself from its mother. Only then did it open its eyes. A sensor on the nose locked onto the sparkling building, four fins and its tail extended outward. It adjusted the angle of its fins, added lift, stability, no longer plummeting. It flew. So many things had to happen for these men to arrive at their deaths. Start with the invention of the internal combustion engine, follow with the development of Europe and the Americas and the rest of the world, creating a ravenous appetite for oil, which created oil rigs and refineries and massive wealth for desert princes. Then global supply chains, trade agreements, secure shipping routes and the law of the sea. Negotiated arms sales, too. Add in the vast edifice of Western science, computing and radio technology, the space race and the microchip, Silicon Valley and the military-industrial complex, and other subtler developments. American pioneered methods of high-value targeting, the post-9-11 explosion of private military contractors. It took all of the massively complex, interconnected modern world to bring these men to their deaths. It was a shame they were incapable of appreciating it. I want to make one comment, not to bring this to my experience, but to use my experience to assent to the essential truth, as far as I can tell, of, of, of what that is, um, which is that moment that you describe where he is looking at the screen and he knows that these people are going to die before they do. I actually, one of the most profound moments for me in Afghanistan, and maybe one of the first moments where I felt myself um, awaken from the slumber that is the military, the dogma that is the military, um, was when we were, um, we had just defeated um, a Taliban attack on our base. It was in the winter time. And we were watching the uh, aircraft sort of follow these little groups of Taliban that were running back toward Pakistan. And it almost exactly, um, like that, we saw one of these aircraft get three guys um, and they had been running and then they stop and they're just sort of like, they slowed down and they're just sort of walking and then they stopped and they huddled. They had like a quick little huddle, they took a knee. And I thought then they must, they must know that they're good. You know, they've escaped the, you know, they're, they're away from the machine guns. They're away from the artillery. They can hear the, they can see, you know, the fight going on back there over the hill because this is all happening at night but they must think they're safe. And then there was a, then we got, we, we cleared them hot and they dropped a bomb on them. And so there was this countdown, this terribly macabre countdown in the talk in which I participated, of course, where people went 10, nine, eight. And then, you know, there was actually a, a bit of a lag between the signals. Yeah. So we got down to one, nothing happened. You know, the screen is just still there. And then it turned white and then they were gone. Right. And I was like, that's really bizarre, you know? That's yeah. what just happened is, is, is a very strange thing to have taken part in. I had nothing to do with it. I, was, I might as well have been at home watching a movie. And I love that, that part with uh, that, that experience of, I, I probably, I mean, that's, you know, I, I, I found it quite relatable um, with Juan Pablo, you know, looking at that and seeing that happen and knowing that, you know, what an extraordinary complicated thing that we're all involved in and yet completely right. uninvolved at the same time. How could you not be a missionary under those circumstances? <laughs> we all are anyway. Yeah, Juan Pablo's sort of like a, it's like a reverse pilgrim's progress, right? He starts mm. with God and then sort of ends up in 
you know, depends on how how you think of it. Uh, would you feel so then there's Valencia. Valencia, if if <laughs> if one is if one is disappointed that his path did not end with God, Valencia redeems this fact, right? In a way, in a in a way that confounds him and really ticks him off. Like he can't he's like, we just sent you to church to be a good girl, you know, to be a lady. And you actually his daughter, found, yeah. <laughs> yeah, his daughter. You, you know, and then all of a sudden she finds Christ, you know, and she's like, Well, I want to minister to the poor. I want and this really throws him probably more than almost anything else we see in the novel. Yeah, the, 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 it's about his relationship. I mean, his story is very much about his his relationship with his daughter and sort of, you know, she's his hope for the future, but she's, there's also like, is she going to repudiate everything that I've become, right? Mm. Is she a continuation of what I've started and what my family is a part of, or is she the repudiation of it? Um, yeah. Or the redemption of it. Or the redemption of it, yeah. Which is an even scarier thought because that then means that, you know, much like the people facing a Trump pardon net right now, uh, one must have been guilty to have received. <laughs> oh. Well, I did yeah, want that... to say, oh, go ahead, Phil, sorry. Oh, no, uh, well, I was just gonna bring it back to, to that passage in, in, uh, in the murder. Because um, you, you had talked about how they, you know, he felt like he had found the true faith that all of his family members had been searching for, but never found. And then, you know, one of the things that's so kind of heartbreaking about it is it's so simple what he finds. He knew it all now and understood where God was and how he was to be served. And the only thing he could not understand was why men's destinies were so diverse, why this simple faith, which other men received from God for nothing, and together with their lives, had cost him such a price that his arms and legs trembled like a drunken man's from all the horrors and agonies, which as far as he could see would go on without a break to the day of his death. He looked with strained eyes into the darkness, and it seemed to him that through the thousand miles of that mist, he could see home, could see his native province, his district, Provenaya, could see the darkness, the savagery, the heartlessness, and the dull, sullen, animal indifference of the men he had left there. His eyes were dim with tears, but still he gazed into the distance where the pale lights of the steamer faintly gleamed, and his heart ached with yearning for home, and he longed to live, to go back home, to tell them there of his new faith, and to save from ruin, if only one man, and to live without suffering, if only for one day. And he's not going to get it. No, now, him. now he's got the suffering every day. He gets a little yeah. reprieve at the very end, but that's, yeah, that's probably a beautiful way to, uh, to end this episode, I think, because that's how we, uh, you know, with a prayer that everyone be granted uh, the easiest faith possible, because <laughs> it's about, as, <laughs> as, about yeah. as much as you can hope for in this yeah. uh, fallen world in which we live. <laughs> any, any closing thoughts? That's a fine you guys. Yeah, thanks for joining us. Uh, thanks Thank for reading the so murder. And thanks for writing missionaries. Thank you. Have a good night. You too.